It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is, I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less, no thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. A tsunami has killed more than 800 people in Indonesia. The Violence Against Women Act is set to expire. And the FBI is investigating the allegations against Brett Kavanaugh. We discuss another intense news cycle and talk with Abigail Spanberger, former CIA operative running for Congress in Virginia. This is Sarah from the left. And Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance. Welcome to another episode of Pantsy Politics. Thank you for joining us. We got a lot to talk about, so we're just going to dive in. Over the weekend, a tsunami in Indonesia killed more than 800 people. This actually happened on Friday. A series of earthquakes was followed by an earthquake that was a 7.5 magnitude and then an 18-foot wave tsunami that was so devastating. It caused a hotel to collapse. That's the image that most stayed with me from the coverage that I read because I feel like we're in Kentucky. It's hard to understand what a tsunami really means. Mm-hmm. But picturing a wave collapsing a hotel – That helps me put my mind there. It is expected that that death toll is going to rise significantly as they start the cleanup effort here. 17,000 people have been rendered homeless. This has really overwhelmed Indonesia's disaster recovery systems. But as of Sunday evening, Indonesia as a country had not declared Palu, where this happened, and the impacted area along the coastline, a national disaster zone. That has to happen for international funding, supplies, and staffing to come into Indonesia. So right now, there are lots of agencies waiting for that designation so that they can come in and try to help. 
Here's what I keep thinking about when I was reading about the size of the waves. So that that Weather Channel simulation everybody talked about during the flooding member. I went and looked it up because I was like, well, how tall was that? That was nine foot when they got all the way to the top and they were trying to show you how big it was. And, you know, we were all like, oh, my God, it's just hard to realize how big that is. Well, that's twice as high as that simulation. It's in an area of the world that is prone to this kind of activity. I was really struck when I read that there are 22 buoys spread over Indonesia's open water to try to help prevent things like this or mitigate the damage. None of those 22 buoys have been operational for the past six years. And I think this is just a moment when we have to recognize weather events are not in decline. Mm -hmm. And a good place for investment and study is an infrastructure to help us deal with weather events like this. Absolutely. We also wanted to talk about the Violence Against Women Act. It has already expired. The Senate has passed an extension through December 7th as part of a spending bill. The House is expected to consider that bill. However, on September 26th, the House blocked a proposal from Democrats in the House to increase funding and give the Violence Against Women Act more teeth in connection with a reauthorization. So it's failed once in the House, but the Senate has passed an extension of the bill as is, and the House is expected to look at that as well. As we were preparing for the show and I was looking at the Violence Against Women Act reporting, I thought, surely, surely with all this current Kavanaugh situation with the president and his past with sexual assault, surely the Republican Party would not let this lapse, would not let this funding collapse. And then I thought, why, why, why would I think that? They have been so unapologetically anti-woman. I don't know why they would stop now. Can we talk a little bit about what this act actually does? I think it's confusing because most crimes against women, rape, domestic abuse, sex crimes, are state law crimes. So why does the federal government have a role here? This was passed in 1994 in the aftermath of Clarence Thomas's confirmation to the Supreme Court. I think a way to summarize this, and I'm not sure that this is legislatively accurate, is that it approaches violence against women almost as a public health issue because it's saying, look, we're trying to prevent domestic and dating violence. We're trying to prevent stalking and sexual assault, and we're trying to help victims after crimes occur. So the Violence Against Women Act provides lots and lots of money to social service agencies that help victims impacted by sexual violence. It also helps with things like rape kit testing. There's all kinds of work surrounding the prosecution of sex crimes that is extremely expensive, it's really difficult, and states have been very poor at doing it. And so this is a federal mechanism to try to wrap around the state prosecution of those crimes to improve this issue as a public health issue, which has important economic consequences as well because women are such an essential part of the workforce now. So that's how I put all those blocks together in my mind of why do we have a federal Violence Against Women Act? And what do you think the conservative perspective is on why so many of these <clears throat> guys, they're just just—they're mainly guys, I'm just going to be clear about this, vote against the Violence Against Women Act? One might say that this is just outside of what the federal government is supposed to do. And that's why I have conceptualized it for myself 
as a public health issue, and I do believe the federal government has a role in public health issues. What we know about violence against women is that it transcends every demographic, that it leads in many cases to mass shootings, that Mm -hmm. it drastically affects the workforce, as I said. This is a disease in our culture, in my mind. And so I see it more akin to what the CDC does than as adding to the body of federal criminal law. I think that conservatives probably have some legitimate questions about how this money is being spent and how effective it is. And that's what really my conservative perspective on this is that it bothers me that it is being rushed into spending bills and probably treated as something where they want to just minimize the PR damage attached Mm -hmm. to it. When really, I think it's a good idea to do a stock take of this. What's working? What's not working? Where could we be spending more money to help with this problem? Where do we want to shift our approach? Our understanding of sex crimes and the technology attendant to those crimes has to have changed dramatically since 1994. So I think it's irresponsible conservative governance to just be rushing this thing at the last minute. But here's what bothers me. They don't come out and say, we have concerns about whether this is the role of the federal government. We understand preventing violence against half the population of our country is a top priority for the country and for us. And so we want to, we've looked at this. It's not like they didn't know it was coming up for reauthorization. You know, a smart smart senator who was going to be opposed to this would have said, I've looked at this. This is what I don't think works. This is what I think does work. This is what we should scale up. You know, they just say it's not the role of the federal government, and that should be the end of the conversation. As if there aren't times and places in which the federal government might not be the best suited actor, but there is no other actor to take this on. And so we need to talk about the best and most limited approach to the federal government approaching attacking a problem instead of just saying... Not the role of the federal government, don't care how important of an issue it is, end of story, which is what they always do. Well, I agree. And I think that approach, and especially the sort of tennis approach of Democrats are 100% for this, Republicans are 100% against it. And depending on who's in Congress, when acts come up for reauthorization, we go, we swing dramatically to one side or the other. That costs us money in the long term. If you start to just yank funding from all of the places across this country that receive funding from the Violence Against Women Act, and then later we decide we need it again, rebuilding is so much more expensive than maintaining or evolving. And I think that's what's called for. What What is the next evolution of this? The smart thing for Democrats to have done, because they also know it was coming for reauthorization, instead of just waiting and playing that they hate women, we don't, would be to take the air out of their sails and say, hey, we've spent the last six months really looking at the Violence Against Women Act. Here's the problems we think. Here's where the government's not doing a great job. Take that talking point away from them. Here's where we think the government doesn't do a great job is not well-suited under the Violence Against Women Act. Here's where we think they're doing a really wonderful job and we have the stats to prove it. Here's what we want to scale up. I mean, you know, either side could have done this. Either side could have taken, instead of just a quick, you know, the talking points approach, somebody could have done the, well, here's what we're thinking about. And it's not that there aren't people thinking carefully about this. This weekend, there was a march for black women Saturday and Sunday. It was launched by the Black Women's Blueprint. And there were two rallies in D.C. and New York. And what I loved so much and retweeted on our Twitter feed was 
I like it when marches have very specific demands. Just from my research on the March for Washington, they used to have very specific demands. And so I'm always encouraged when there are marches that say, here's why we're here and here's what we want very specifically. And this march was like that. And one of their key demands was the full reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act with a focus on intersectional women's rights concerns like poverty, affordable housing, reproductive rights, immigration protections, reversing the Trump administration on banning words at the CDC, evidence-based science, diversity, and entitlement. So we're going to put a link in our show notes if you want to learn more about that. But I was very encouraged to see people out there demanding very specific requests with regards to this and other things. You mentioned that violence against women affects half the population, and I know that you mean this too. It affects the whole population, right? Mm -hmm. Violence against women has tremendous and terrible consequences for men and boys in our country. And so one thing that I'm looking for as we talk to candidates across the country is a sense of prioritization. The truth is where we are with this act and lots of other, especially public health issues, is that we're trying to spread across such a wide swath of concerns. And we have people who are all in and all out. And so we end up with kind of starved approaches to these things. $1.6 billion for violence against women authorized in 1994 sounds like a lot of money. It is not when you spread it across the United States. So rather than having these starved out programs that continue in perpetuity begrudgingly, I would love to see a Congress that sets some priorities and says, you know, we're going to go all in on this issue right now. We've got a gun violence problem in this country. It is well known that gun violence often begins with domestic violence. So let's go all in on this for a while. Let's add a lot more money here. Let's set it to authorize in two years or three, set it for reauthorization in two years or three years instead of five, 10, 15 years and reassess. But let's really, if we're going to do this, let's really do it instead of this half-hearted approach that's like a symbolic win for one side and not too much of a loss for the other side. I think we're costing ourselves a lot more money not doing a very good job or doing good public service by the way we tackle these things. And taking this up at the last minute to me is just so symptomatic of that approach. But it spans lots of issues. Fun fact, as we transition to our next topic... Senators Cornyn and Cruz and Graham and Grassley and Hatch and Lee, all current ranking members of the Judiciary Committee, voted against the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act in 2013. And that seems unsurprising based on where we are in the circus continuing around Brett Kavanaugh's nomination. The usual suspects, here again, here again. Well, we have an FBI investigation. I'm encouraged by that. You were not feeling super encouraged by that in the beginning. How are you feeling now? So I'm of two minds. Politically, I am not encouraged by it. Politically, I am fearful that a week from now we will have something really inconclusive. Republicans will say, see, we've been over backwards, and then they'll just push his confirmation through. On the other side, I am not as troubled as some, especially in the media, are by reported constraints on this FBI investigation, because I do believe that the FBI knows what it's doing and it will do a good job. And I do not believe the FBI will say, oh, we weren't supposed to talk to that person. 
I think mm-hmm. the FBI has shown, particularly over the last two years, that it will investigate what it believes needs investigating. Thank you very much. And I'm comforted by that. I told you over the weekend, I think any delay is, oh, I sound like a real Democrat. Any delay is a good is a good thing. <laughs> good member of the Democratic Party right now. Any delay is a good thing because it just gives pause to to think it through, to work through what was said during both testimonies over the weekend as we all had time to sort of think through this. Where I've where I've really settled after watching both testimonies is I do not believe that Brett Kavanaugh has a memory of the event. His um fervor when speaking about whether or not he did this is it, it would be hard to fake. So I don't think he has a memory of it. However, I think that his credibility while talking about his drinking was lacking to be incredibly generous. No one has in their life who's ever drank to excess could or should say, I remember everything that's ever happened while I was drinking. That's a absurd statement. And that's basically what he told the prosecutor. So to me, I think, and I see it, there's a lot of writing online sort of crystallizing around this point. You know, the reason it's such a tough case is they're both 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 believable because I think they're both being very truthful to their own memories. He is not being truthful when he talks about his drinking. He is not being truthful when he describes Devil's Triangle as a drinking game. He's not. One of my favorite tweets is somebody said, take all three friends in different rooms and have them set up Devil's Triangle, which I thought was really smart. And so, I, I mean, to me, that's where we're at. We all can, we all, anyone who's ever drank in their life can listen to him talking about drinking and realize he's not being truthful. And anyone can listen to Christine Blasey Ford and realize that she is being truthful. So, I mean, I just think that's where we're at. And I think, I wonder how much the investigation is going to go into that aspect. If they're going to, you know, Jeff Flake has now come out on a Sunday show and said, if he lies, the nomination's over. If he's caught in a lie, the nomination's over. So, and you have his classmates coming out now and saying he was basically, it was a a massive mischaracterization of his drinking. Um, but, you know, what I hear on, and when I was, you know, on Facebook over the weekend, I, I think I'm really realizing, though, it's taken me far too long to realize this, to, to read conversations on Facebook and just like, and then have conversations about the conversations on Facebook in real life. How often it's just, you just get the most extreme people commenting and everyone else is following along and feeling like, I don't know. I know that's a revolutionary statement. Everybody's like, yes, there are a way to catch up. But I think there's so many, there's, you know, there's a subset out there who are focused only on the Democrats and what they did wrong and how they said on it and they leaked. I mean, that is the narrative coming out of Kavanaugh's camp. And it is frustrating. And I just have to remember that it is not indicative of how the entire country feels. I think that is a small set of people who are just, you know, furious that the Democrats sat on this letter, quote unquote, which I find hysterically hypocritical in the face of Merrick Garland, but whatever. So, I, I mean, I think the the zeitgeist seems to be crystallizing around his statements on his drinking. I mean, even you could even see that in the Saturday Night Live skit. So I just wonder how much the investigation will overlap with that discussion. You know what I mean? I do. I thought a lot about the, the Democrats, right, in quotes, mm-hmm. and the delay and the tactical aspect. I was specifically thinking about what if I just – 
except for the sake of argument, the Lindsey Graham view of this process. As much as one can discern a coherent view underlying all of the rage that he spewed during that hearing. So let me just accept, for the sake of argument, that the Democrats played this as dirty as possible. Okay, I'm accepting that. I'm not, I'm not going to argue with it. Do we not care what the truth of it is because of how it came about? It's like we live in this world where once the truth gets tainted, it like changes the actual nature of the truth. You know what I mean? Like it's like the second, well, there was a donation. Then that means we can't trust the truth. You know what I mean? Like there's no truth available once somebody's made a political donation. It's so weird how people talk about it. It doesn't matter that she passed the polygraph. It matters who paid for it. It, it's that line of thinking. It's I, I just think that's a really dangerous place to be. And I think the reason that Jeff Flake was moved is that he had to, in his face, in a very small space, listen to women saying, I don't care about any of that. I care about you telling me that sexual assault doesn't matter. That's what I care about. And I feel like for a second, Jeff Flake was transported out of the toxicity of Washington, D.C., where this is all tactics and politics all the time, Mm -hmm. to the real world where there is a very real message being sent here. And I'm grateful for that. And I know Jeff Flake takes a beating from everybody on earth. That's probably an indication that he's doing a little bit of something right if everybody's pissed at you. I'll be honest. I totally agree. And that's how the judiciary is supposed to operate as well. BT dubs, which I think is important as we consider Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation. I wish Jeff Flake could sit a little taller. I hated for him how apologetic he was in the Judiciary Committee. I'm not mad at him about it. I'm grateful that he did what he did. But I was watching him, and he looked like someone who had been shamed into changing his position and then shamed because he wasn't going along with his friends. Mm-hmm. And I just... What a mess that is. What a mess when you can't kind of sit tall and say, you know what I think the fair thing to do here is? Let's have an investigation. But I wanted to mention, I read this great piece in The Atlantic called uh, Jeff Flake Shames Himself. I think The Atlantic has been on point about this entire situation. I have like 15 Atlantic links in my notes this week. But in it, he talked about how his relationship with Chris Coons made such a difference in his decision-making here. And he talked about how they have been in the Middle East together. They have been in Africa together. They have worked on all these specific things together. And that relationship mm-hmm. weighed on him. And I thought that was really instructive and really hope-inspiring. And it made me want to spend, like, whatever money it takes to give members of Congress more experiences like that. Because I think the ability, if you need to be in Baghdad together to be able to come back to Washington and work hand in hand, let's let's send you all to Baghdad to have those moments. This all really transitions to my gratitude moment this week because— Me too, me too. I have felt kind of shattered by this entire discussion and how people in real life are talking about it. And what I wanted to say this week that I'm grateful for is the community of people who listen to our show and who have been writing to us and talking to us on social media, because I think even people who are in very different places than I am are approaching this with real honesty and curiosity and kindness toward one another. And I am so grateful and inspired by that. Well, I am grateful. This is a two-parter. First, for Maria Gallagher and Anne Maria Arquila, who confronted Jeff Flake in the elevator 
you know, I was so struck by that. You know, Gallagher's mother had not even heard the story of her sexual assault. She told no one. I, I thought immediately of Rachel Held Evans' book, Inspired, and she talks about prophets and people who stand up and say, not today, not in my house, not today. And I think that's what they did, and I think it was so powerful, and I do think it changed things. And I'm just so incredibly grateful for their bravery I can't fathom how hard that was. And two-parter, I'm also grateful for Jeff Flake. Don't at me, y'all. Listen, that was the three of them standing in that space was an incredibly raw human moment. And we don't have to decide if either of those three parties are 100% good or 100% flawed or... They're Democratic activist, or he's just manipulating the system and he's the worst and he doesn't, you know, you know, we don't have to do that. We just don't. We all got to witness the three of them locked together in an incredibly human moment. And they all went away changed. And our situ- the situation that affects all of us changed in that moment. And it's it's a very difficult thing, and it doesn't happen that often. And I'm really, really grateful for it. I'm just really grateful for that moment. The three of them those human beings shared on that elevator. I 100% agree with you. Next up, we are going to be talking with Abigail Spanberger. Abigail started her career as a federal law enforcement officer working narcotics and money laundering cases with the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. She then joined the CIA as an operations officer, came back home to work in higher education, and has had a very interesting campaign against Dave Bratt in Virginia so far. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality but not salon-priced manicure, Olive and Jean has you covered. We've talked about Olive and Jean's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box. Salon-grade tools. Your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are going to last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and Jean also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors, and I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. And they say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. Just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, 
Regency-era historical fiction and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash pantsy We are joined today by Abigail Spanberger, who is running for Congress in Virginia in the 7th District. Welcome to Pantsy Politics, Abigail. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I have all the questions for you because you have the most interesting <laughs> background. And I wanted to start by noting as I was preparing for this episode that you are running against Dave Bratt. His former communications manager has endorsed you because he sees you as someone who can really help us get beyond partisanship. And I would love to just hear what your experience talking to folks in your district of both parties has been like. Yeah, so our district, we're in central Virginia. We have a total of 10 counties. We're a mix of suburban communities and rural communities. And uh, people across our, our district are really excited by and wanting people who are going to try and move this country forward, who are committed to uh, crossing party lines and understanding uh, what are the concerns of people across our district. Um, and, and so it's been a, it's been a tremendous experience going across our 10 counties, talking to people across the district, and um, and really taking the time to understand what are concerns for people and whether they identify as Democrats or Republicans or independents, um, and, and being a part of those conversations. We've done now 133 meet-and-greet events, so just at community centers or libraries or living rooms, dining rooms, basements across the district. Uh, we've also done uh, many forums that are either topic-focused or uh, informational and um, it's it's been incredible to have the opportunity to, to sit down with people and talk to people about the issues that are important to them. And I, I think people and, and like uh, my opponent's former communications director said, you know, I think people are really interested in in having leadership in Washington that's committed to finding commonalities and committed to getting past so much of this partisan bickering uh, that really isn't serving anyone's best interests. Does that feel like it's surfacing as the prominent issue in this cycle, just this sense that things are broken? 
Yeah, I think so. And it it seems to be a bit of an umbrella issue. You know, frequently people will want to talk about specific issues in healthcare, issues-wise is the number one in our district, in addition to, um, you know, jobs and educational issues and environmental issues and gun violence prevention issues. Um, but overall, the, the um, umbrella of it all is that there's a lack of trust. Uh, there's a lack of um, uh, feeling that, that, that folks in Washington that are elected officials are really doing the hard work of working together uh, to try and uh, advocate for the needs of the people they represent and, and the needs of the people across our country. So you are a former CIA officer and work counterterrorism and international drug trafficking cases. You also are very committed to your family. We would love to hear you talk about immigration and how you see the state of immigration in our country right now as a Girl Scout troop leader and a former CIA operative. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, you know, I think the the crux of the issue is that, that you know, my background in CIA, my background in, in federal law enforcement before that is one that, you know, has really defined my entire perspective on issues and how I see um, you know, how I, how I talk about issues of national security um, and certainly within the, the construct of discussing border security, I, I want to make sure that we are protecting our country at its borders, at its point of entries, uh, that we know who is coming and going from this country so that we can uh, best protect uh, our citizens, our infrastructure and ourselves. But that conversation can be decoupled from issues of immigration reform. And I think one of the things that's so clear from all of the arguments that we've witnessed happening in Washington, from all the discussions that I've had with people within our district, is that people recognize that this current system is not working. People recognize that it's not an easy issue. People recognize that for some it's a it's an emotional issue, for some it's an economic issue, for some it's a just a, a historical kind of issue of we are the country of immigrants. Um, and I think you know o- overall people recognize that we need really comprehensive reform and. Um, uh, people across our district are frustrated that we haven't haven't seen um, haven't seen that, and uh, certainly what we saw come out of uh, conversations, and certainly what our incumbent supported uh, this past spring was not comprehensive reform that would make our communities safer, but also recognize the needs of employers and recognize the value of immigration as as we are a country of of immigrants. And I think that. You know, what we saw in 2013 on the Senate side was a strong effort at bipartisan immigration reform. Uh, some members of Congress actually put forth, uh, you know, a really, a, a really earnest effort at bipartisan immigration reform. And it couldn't even get out of committee this year because there just wasn't there wasn't a critical mass of people who recognized that this is a tough issue, that this is um, an important issue, that this is um, an issue that needs bipartisanship and, and a real commitment to to a addressing kind of the, the problems related to border security and the need for reform and updates and, and changes on the immigration side. And uh, and so, you know, I, I think it's incredibly important that we have a, a strong shift of, uh, of members of Congress who are committed to trying to really find solutions to these, to these issues in a bipartisan way, immigration chief among them. Let's put you in Congress right now and <laughs> think about the reporting that's just come out from the New York Times about the undocumented children's program and how children all over the country are being transported in the middle of the night to this area in Texas because we're struggling with funding and capacity and we just have more kids in the custody of the federal government than we know what to do with. How do you begin to help us see our way out of this crisis? I 
spoke briefly at the in the last question that my perspective is informed by the fact that I'm a former CIA officer and before that a federal agent. Um, my perspective is also informed by the fact that I am a parent. Uh, I have three young daughters and the images that we've seen along the border, you know, in months past when it was all over the news and now uh, the report of today, it is, it is unimaginable to me the pain that some families are going through, the experience that we are thrusting upon young children. Um, and, and I think it also speaks to the fact that we had an administration that carried out, uh, that pushed orders without even having a long-range plan uh, for how all of this was going to work out. Where are we going to put all these children? How are we going to reunite children uh, with their parents? And that lack of planning, I think, is just it's symptomatic of a reactive way of legislating or and a reactive way of governing at the executive level. Um, and, and I think, you know, were I in Congress tomorrow, the focus would be on recognizing what, what are the, what are we trying to achieve? And ideally the things we'd be trying to achieve would be reuniting kids with their parents as quickly as possible, ensuring that this doesn't happen again in the future and understanding what is the capacity of what is it that we as a country are capable of, of doing and, and how is it that we can make sure that we are enforcing immigration laws, but also respecting the humanity of the people who come here seeking asylum, which is their legal right. Um, and, and certainly uh, recognizing that we have, I think, a moral obligation to the young children who are facing horrific circumstances, in many cases in their home country, which led them on a trek to here, um, and now to be facing such um, unimaginable loss uh, of being separated from their parents. I mean, we need people who are focused on getting the kids back with their parents um, and and actually taking control of the situation by legislating, by creating policy that would drive what it is that our law enforcement um, and border patrol agents are actually doing along the border. So you talk about, I think that's such a good point, like lack of transparency, not just lack of preparation as yeah. symptomatic of bad governance. I know you're very passionate about good governance and you've taken some practices in your campaigns. Tell us what good governance looks like to you. So across the campaign trail, one of the things that's been really clear to me, and, and we touched on this at the beginning, is that people just have a lack of trust. People think that there's always some other angle. People, and this is not across the board, but there's this underlying wave of concern that there's, uh, where's the money coming from? Does the money buy influence? Why would someone vote this way? What are someone's motivations? And watching that level of distrust that people may or may not have in their elected officials um, or in, you know, in some members of Congress, I think is incredibly unfortunate because it signals that, that, that there's a disconnect and that, you know, pe members of Congress and, and people within the executive branch, I mean, should, their goal is to serve the people of this country. And when the people of this country don't feel that their best interests are being prioritized or that they are the ones being served by what's happening in, in D.C., um, that I think is incredibly problematic. And that lack of trust, it, it, it trickles to everything, including just voter turnout, because when people feel like, OK, well, they're not they're not voting in my best interest anyway. Why? Why should I get out there and get engaged? Why should I get out there? And get involved. And I, I think it's actually a, a, a larger problem that is not just one individual not trusting his or her elected legislators, be they at the local level, state level, or federal level, but it's also 
making people turn away from the political process. And so when you hear people say, oh, I don't like politics, those same people will often discuss things that are, in fact, political issues and how we approach them and how we solve problems. But when they say, I don't like politics, that means that they view the political process as the problem in such a substantial way that they're taking steps back from, you know, what is their civic duty? What is their right as an American? You know, and and fundamentally their ability to use their voice sometimes at the polls if they feel like it doesn't matter. One of the things in your list of good governance practices is that you support the No Budget, No Pay Act. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So, uh, the I mean, the act is simple. It's if, if there's no budget, which is Congress's responsibility to pass a budget, if there's no budget, uh, members of Congress, by the deadline, members of Congress don't get paid. And um, I think it's pretty straightforward, and I think it's simple. And I have had the experience of being overseas, sitting around a table with a bunch of other CIA officers, as we're, you know, eking up on on a a much-talked-about potential government uh, closing and saying, okay, who among us are uh, who among us are necessary employees? Who among us can can you know go home for a couple of days if the government closes? Um, because you know you tier people based on required personnel or not. And the fact that anybody anywhere, you know, what is normally a job that people are doing every single day, all of a sudden becomes so you know a non-essential employee versus an essential employee for me is just ridiculous. The fact that we were having a conversation around the table of, well, who's who's handling terrorism cases? Who's handling this? Who can go home for a couple of days and not be missed? You know, meanwhile, we're all CIA officers living overseas and operating overseas. That The fact that Congress had pushed us into that position, and many times we talk about government shutdowns that ultimately end up not happening. The amount of planning that goes on within government agencies as they're planning for a potential shutdown, the amount of angst that happens for federal employees who are just trying to do their job and serve their mission because of a potential government shutdown, it's irresponsible. And the idea that in in the process of not doing its job, which would be passing a budget, uh, members of Congress would still get paid, I think is um, is is ridiculous. And so I think um, just on the principle, how much it actually hurts people or uh, or their pocketbooks remains to be seen. But on the principle of it, if you are not doing your job um, and a foundational job that allows other people across the country and across the world, quite frankly, to do their job, then you shouldn't you should be threatened with the possibility of, of losing your own pay during that time. It's been a strange and disorienting couple of years as the American public observes Congress's oversight role of the intelligence communities. And I'm wondering from Mm -hmm. your vantage point, what are we getting right and where are we falling short in that oversight role? You know, I think the oversight of the intelligence community is incredibly important. Uh, what I think and, and always will be, uh, the intelligence community kind of as a whole, people who work within the intelligence community are among some of the most interesting, dedicated public servants, you know, one might ever meet. <laughs> and in some cases, one might meet and never know that that's what they actually do for a living. Um, but, but I think among the things that we're getting wrong is politicizing that because the oversight is most effective when questions are asked because they need to be answered uh, in order to ensure that we have a strong intelligence community that is functioning in a way that aligns with American priorities and American values. Um, and the minute that oversight becomes hyper-partisan or even to any large degree partisan um, is the point where that that degrades the ability to do true oversight, which, as a, which I do believe is wholly necessary. Um, but it also puts the intelligence community in this political place where, you know, that is not where the intelligence community should be. And that's not where 
um, its priorities and the work of its employees should be scrutinized. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water, leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy filtered shower head is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy filtered showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. You have weathered some attacks on the campaign trail, one of which has been widely publicized. CNBC called it the kind of attack that only John McCain would recognize about your time (laughs) overseas. And I want to ask you about that, but maybe in a slightly different way than you've talked about it elsewhere. I feel like this is the kind of event 
that prevents so many people from seeking public office. And I would love to know what your experience going through it has been like and what advice you have to people who are afraid of these things. So, you know, I was a long-term substitute teacher at an embassy school here in the United States in Virginia, um, and they have used that against me to paint me as a terrorist trainer, which is, you know, there's there's so many elements to the story where where it's just wrong um, and it's offensive uh, to the kids I taught. It's offensive to me as a person who taught, you know, Bronte and Shakespeare to young kids, most of whom were um, Muslim children from other countries. Um, but, you know, the how it's affected me is my kids come home, have come home from elementary school. My fifth grader said, well, mommy, my friend saw the TV ad where they call you a terrorist. And so, you know, there's a gasp there. And I said, okay, well, what do you, what do you think about that? She said, well, I, I think it's okay because they also saw the ad that says you're not a terrorist. So they know you're not a terrorist, you know, and, and having a conversation like that with my fifth grader. After your thinks, professional choices too. That's yeah, the most outrageous. <laughs> the, the, the irony of, I mean, oh, you know, and, uh, the amount of, it is hysterical. If it weren't so egregious, it would be Seriously. hysterical. Um, but it's, you know, if it's not that sort of attack on me, it's an attack on I mean, attack on people across the country. And it's hard to to hear, to watch a television ad where they have a creepy, you know, looking photo of you and they make you look bad and they 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 make you look threatening and menacing. And what are you hiding? Um, and it, it, it does. You know, you have to have your kids prepared for it so that when some kid at school says, hey, I heard your mom's a terrorist, that's. That doesn't, especially for younger kids, and, and frankly, actually for any age kid, it's hard for them. You know, it's it's actually really hard for my mom to hear to watch the attacks. She's she's probably at times more affected by it than my fifth grader, um, and and so I think it does keep good people from running. But it goes back to that good governance thing. It goes back to that expectations where, you know, I've had so many people come up to me and say it's just it's just disgusting, like how they're attacking you. And, and this is what's wrong. And I would say, you know, for some people who have said to me, like, I, I just couldn't do it because I wouldn't want to subject myself to this. I think it, it takes a mindset and it, it is something that I have convinced myself of, which is the attacks that they've done against me are just exactly emblematic of what is wrong with our system. The fact that they're attacking me the way that they're attacking me and the fact that they're attacking people across this country um, and, and lying in, in so many cases, it's exactly what's wrong with politics. It's exactly why good people say, oh, I'm not political, but yet they care about all these issues that are indeed political. And so for me, I have chosen every time I have something negative placed up against me to have it strengthen my resolve because I am running because I find it unacceptable and I choose to weather the attacks because I want to be a part of ideally in the long term creating a bit of a sea change where other people can say, this is ridiculous. This is wrong. I am not voting for someone who does things like this because I think too many people have almost accepted it as normal and I refuse to accept it as normal. Participating in public service, it can be anything. For some people, it's running. For some people, it's voting. For some people, it's wearing a button if that's outside your comfort zone. 
so that you can be a person that they, somebody in the grocery store might strike up a political conversation. We can all play a role in, in normalizing healthy political conversations. Um, and so, you know, my, my common call to people is just get involved in any, any way, big or small, of changing the conversation in the way that we think it needs to be changed across this country. We couldn't agree more about that, that's for sure. Tell people where they can learn more about your campaign and get involved. Sure. So my name is Abigail Spanberger, and my website is abigailspanberger.com. Because Spanberger is a bit hard, you can also do elect Abigail, and that will redirect to Spanberger. Uh, But it's uh, Spanberger, S-P like Peter, A-N like Nancy, B-E-R-G-E-R. And we've got um, ways to get involved on the website. You can sign up to volunteer, and um, you know people from far away are welcome to try and phone bank. People who are local, we love for you to canvas. Um, and just any level of engagement and encouragement we can get uh, from folks across the country is super helpful and much appreciated. We will have all that information in our show notes. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. We can't wait to follow up with you and hear how your race went and hopefully what your priorities are as you go into your freshman term in Congress. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. I truly appreciate it. Beth, what is on your mind outside politics? We talked about this for our bonus episode of The Nuanced Life, but I just want to say that I've been really focused on planning my holidays, specifically my Christmas, so that I am not overwhelmed as we get into November and December. And this is a real area of personal growth for me because in the past, I believed that I did not have time for such things as gift purchasing in September. And I have now realized I have more time in September than I do in December. So Mm -hmm. I need to get on it. And I just feel really good about this. The other thing people think is that if I do Christmas things before Christmas time, I will remove some of the joy. Like I'll like reduce the happy impact of the season. You know what I mean? That's what I thought. Like if I decorate beforehand, if I do anything, it'll make it less fun at Christmas. False. No, what what creates the... (laughs) I'm making room for the joy. Yeah, Exactly. False. What you're doing is... Doing things that are not fun, like, oh, I don't know, texting every friend you have and saying, is this your updated address? And making and allowing, because you only have a finite amount of time in December, people. It's a longish month, sort of, but we all know how fast it flies. So you're taking out the task and allowing time for more, I don't know, repeated watching of Home Alone, for example, hypothetically. So you need to, you need to offload the stuff you don't enjoy so that you have more time to do the things you do enjoy because it's a finite amount of time in, in the holiday season. So, like, I do all my – we did not mention this on the bonus episode, but I do all the cookie dough making and then freeze it in sheets because I don't like that part. I don't like the making the dough and then rolling it out. And then by the time I've done all that, I'm tired when it comes to the part I really like, which is the decorating. So I do all that in, like, November. So in December, we just pull out the flat sheets of cookie dough – Start stamping and decorating, baby. It's the best. It's the best. Because as wish as much as I wish you could shortcut and use the dough at the um, grocery store, it doesn't work, y'all, because they just become puffy blobs. But they don't maintain their shape. But, like, by the time I've, like, made the dough and baked it, if I do all that in one sitting, I'm, like, tired. And then I'm yelling at my kids about decorating because I'm cranky and, like, don't get the icing everywhere and you're going to stain your clothes, blah, 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 by the time. Whereas if I just pull out the dough in December, go to decorating, it's a much better experience. The big thing that's on my mind about this 
is I'm happy to have crossed one of those I'm not that kind of person thresholds. Mm. It's hard when you tell yourself I'm not the kind mm. of person who has a spreadsheet for my Christmas gifts because I have not historically been that kind of person. Now I am, and I've not lost anything from that hardest, change. Hardest level of change is identity. Yes. If you identify as something. Like if you identify – like I know a lot of people who identify as a Diet Coke drinker. <laughs> yes. And it is hard when you tell yourself, I'm this kind of person, right? Or I'm not the kind of person who does X. And it just feels really good to be able to be like, I wasn't that kind of person. I am that kind of person now. Maybe that kind of person doesn't mean anything. It's just a task that I used to not do. I'm doing today. It's bringing me joy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's on your mind outside of politics? Well, I feel that we're in this very awesome pop culture situation. There's a lot of good TV. And there we're also rapidly approaching award season, which means there's a lot of good movies out. So I just watched the season finale of Insecure, which I love that show so much. It was so good. I was crying. I was yelling at the television. Oh, man, I love that show. Um, also, Deuce, another amazingly female-driven show, female-produced, female-written, so good. And then what I am most excited about is A Star is Born is coming out on Friday with Lady Gaga and Bradley Cooper and my excitement cannot be contained. I'm not even, what are Gaga, what are Gaga fans called? Monsters? Little monsters? I'm not even one of those. Like I've never seen her in concert. I like her. I dig Lady Gaga. I think she's cool. But I am beyond it. I don't even like Bradley Cooper actually when it comes right down to it. I don't think he's like crazy sexy. Although I do like this version. I like a little, because he was always a little too pretty. But now he's like a little roughed up around the edges, Bradley Cooper. I'm here for it. And all the reviews are, so, it's like so good when you see a trailer and you're like, that looks amazing. I'm like in it. And then the reviews start coming in and they're so good. It just builds the anticipation so much. And there's, I mean, it's got like a 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Everybody says that she is unbelievable, that their chemistry is so good. Oh, I'm so excited. She is so ridiculously talented. I know. I think it's so unfortunate how many people dismissed her as, like, this shtick. Because mm -hmm. from the beginning, even with all the weird outfits and everything, the meat dress, all of it, her voice oh, yeah. is incredible no matter what she is singing. And I'm just so happy that she's branching out. To see her without the kind of production elements around her in this trailer gave me goosebumps because I, I just think she's such a talent. Oh, you know what? I take that back. I have seen Lady Gaga on concert. I saw her at the Democratic National Convention, and she was like this sort of stripped-down kind of folk. She, I think she played Woody Guthrie and some stuff, and it was amazing. I, I just remembered that. So, yeah, I am super excited about that. There's, a, like, so many female – oh, like the Mary Queen of Scots. Oh, my God. I'm so excited about that movie. I'm so many, like, female – so, it is, like, peak female storytelling right now, and I am here for it on every – Level. I'm even reading My Brilliant Friend right now, the Neapolitan series. I've never read those before. I'm just, I'm in it for female storytelling right now. I'm just all in. I'm all in. Well, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of Pantsy Politics. If you are also in on female storytelling, come over to The Nuanced Life, where we talk about our lives outside of politics in a lot more detail. And this week, we are going to continue the Brett Kavanaugh conversation and talk about what we're learning as parents from the news. So you can join us there on Wednesday. We'll be back here on Friday with Sarah Riggs Amico, candidate for lieutenant governor in Georgia. Until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. 
Pansy Politics is produced by Dylan Garvin. Elise Knapp is our production assistant. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tracy Putoff, Tim Miller, Cherry Haas, Nicholas Holland, and Chad Silvers. To get more Pantsuit Politics, you can become a supporter and receive special bonus features at patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Pantsuit Politics and sign up to receive our weekly newsletters at pantsuitpoliticsshow.com.